We're here today uh, to talk about Job, but before we do that, I would really like to, uh, it is Memorial Day weekend, and um, a lot of us are thinking about uh, those who have served our country, and, and i just like uh, anybody who's a veteran here, a man or woman who served the, our country in, the, in one of the armed services, would you just stand for a moment, please? We'd like to honor you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're, we're all indebted to you. We appreciate your service. Now this morning we're going to look at some, some of the really uh, cosmic questions of life. Um, and so it's a good thing we have at least 30 minutes to do that. Because we'll have enough time for questions that way. But uh, um, the things we're going to look at this morning are, are questions like, why do bad things happen to good people? Who's responsible for that? And, and what should our role be when all of this is happening around us? Do we, do we have something that we need to be doing about that? Or are we just innocent bystanders? And to set the stage for that, I'd like to, to read together with you the first chapter of Job. The book of Job, uh, Michael alluded to it this morning. And we're going to read the whole first chapter together. You'll find that in, in the green version of the, the Bible in your pews, it's, it's page 359. In the black one, it's page 370. If you hit Psalms, turn left. Job is, ju is just before Psalms. So um, it'll be on the screen as well. Job 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said, Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well. Then everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and, and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants. I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While, while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels 
and carry them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Uh, then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now, Michael uh, alluded this morning to the fact that uh, the whole book of Job is a great story and uh, probably a, a whole sermon series in that uh, about how Job responded uh, to this time of trial and, and all this tragedy at once in his life. Uh, but for, for our purposes this morning, what we're focused on is chapter 1 here and uh, why what happened to Job happened to him as well as his response. Certainly his response was one of faith. Uh, he, he trusted God implicitly. Um, but let's look at Job's life first. He was, he was blameless. He was upright. Uh, he was a person who feared God. He shunned evil. And, and God commended him uh, in that conversation with Satan. His wealth was staggering at the time. Most of the wealth at that time was in livestock. And so uh, from the description of his flocks and herds, it's no wonder that he was the wealthiest man in the region at the time. He was the preeminent person of stature in the East at that time. And uh, he, was, he was also thought to be blessed because he had seven sons. Seven was thought to be the perfect number in the East at that time. And, uh, and so he was seen as, as favored by God and, and blessed by God because of his wealth and because of his, his family. He also went the extra mile, didn't he, in terms of devotion. You, you can uh, sense his, his uh, heart as a parent in, uh, in making sacrifices for his kids in case they had done something uh, to, dis to displease God. Uh, he wanted to make sure that they were forgiven. Then we have Satan's uh, challenge to God. And, and the first thing that we can learn from this passage is just the fact that Satan has access to God. He had access at that time to God. He still has access to God. And uh, we learn in, in uh, Revelation uh, 1210 and, and by the way I've put relevant scriptures in your outline this morning the outline that came with a bulletin uh, so that you don't have to write them down you you can you can just uh, uh, you can refer back to them later if you choose to Revelation 1210 uh, tells us that Satan is the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before God day and night uh, and that is Satan's MO if you will he accuses us in two ways he accuses us in our hearts and he ministers the gift of guilt, doesn't he? Well, how could God care about you? God hasn't really forgiven you. You're not really good enough to be a Christian. You know, all those things that, that uh, Satan uh, comes at you with uh, to minister the gift of guilt, the gift that keeps on giving, right? The gift, the gift of guilt. And, and then also he stands before God to accuse us before God. And there are a number of passages in, in Scripture that, that point that out. Um, this, one in, this one in particular. Um, and of course... Now we have uh, someone else standing beside God who is our advocate, Christ Jesus, our Savior, who stands before God and said, no, wait a minute, that accusation isn't true because he, he or she is one of mine and their sin is covered. So, so uh, Satan still uh, accuses, though. 
And, and notice his characteristic response when God drew his attention to Job as an upright man. He says, does, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household, everything he has? You bless the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. In other words, the only reason why Job is as devoted to you as he is is because of all the stuff that you've given him. You've blessed him. And if you hadn't done that, uh, he would curse you to your face. Notice the, the disasters that befell Job. Uh, four different things that happened, right? First of all, the, the donkeys and oxen were carried off and the servants killed by the Sabaeans, the Sabaean raiders. And then the fire of God. That, that may have been lightning, it may have been wildfire, but whatever, whatever it was, uh, it ignited and consumed the sheep and the servants. Uh, they couldn't escape it, and, and so they were killed in that fire. And then the Chaldean raiders stole 3,000 camels. I can't imagine the logistics of trying to, to uh, make off with 3,000 camels, but they, they stole 3,000 camels and, and killed all the, the servants. And then finally, a, a strong wind. The scripture says a, the wind came in from the desert. A strong wind came in from the desert and flattened the house that his children were celebrating in and, and killed them all. In, in that moment, uh, Job went from being the wealthiest man in the world of his day and a person who was seen as having stature and being favored by God to being childless and a pauper. All, all in a moment's time, if you can imagine that. And, and what was his response? He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In spite of everything that happened to him, Job's trust remained, remained strong. And as I mentioned, that, that whole story of Job is a, um, is a larger story than we have time to deal with uh, here this morning. Uh, what we're uh, going to focus on more is is the issue in, uh, of uh, Satan's power and how that operates and God's sovereignty and how that operates. The whole issue of when, when bad things happen to good people. Who's in charge anyway? Let me ask you about this. Um, who actually caused the disasters that Job experienced at that time? If you look at the text closely, it, it's evident that, uh, that Satan caused each one, didn't he? And he caused them by, in two cases, manipulating groups of evil people, that is the Sabaean raiders, the Chaldean raiders, uh, to come in, steal the livestock, and kill the servants. In, in two instances, he manipulated natural phenomenon, didn't he? Uh, first of all, the, uh, the fire, whether it was lightning or a wildfire or whatever it was, but the fire that consumed the, the livestock and, and killed the servants. And in the second instance, that this mighty wind, it may have been a tornado or a cyclone, but it was a wind that came up out of the desert suddenly, uh, hit this house and flattened it, and killing all the people inside. Uh, so uh, what we can see from that is that he apparently, Satan has power to manipulate groups of people. He also has power to manipulate natural phenomena, doesn't he? Um, and certainly I, I'm going to suggest that we see the same thing today. Notice that, uh, that God set some boundaries for Satan in afflicting Job, uh, but he didn't stop him, did he? So, he? so here's a question, and this is a question we ask ourselves all the time. If God is sovereign, if he's all-powerful, does that mean he's automatically responsible for evil acts and natural disasters that occur? Does he cause disasters like the cyclone in Myanmar and the, 
the uh, earthquake in China that happened over the last couple of weeks that killed so many thousands of people? I, I'm going to suggest that the answer is no. That uh, because he's sovereign, because he's all-powerful, does not automatically mean that he caused those events to happen. And there, there are some reasons why. Then, then why doesn't God intervene? That's the question we ask ourselves. Why doesn't God intervene? I was thinking about this while I was preparing for this message, and, and I believe the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, Gary, God, God does intervene. You, you see, we don't know uh, what it would be like if he did not intervene. We know he intervened in the story with Job, didn't he? Right at the beginning. He said, don't touch his life. And uh, how many times, for you and I, does God intervene in our lives? I can think of a few instances that I know of. I'll probably know more when I get to heaven about times he's intervened to save my life uh, or to keep me from something that would be very destructive. God does intervene. Uh, Good morning, America. On uh, Friday morning, I was watching the, the story of uh, the tornado coverage down south where a tornado had, uh, had flattened, and we see this all the time, don't we, where disasters happen, where the tornado had flattened the daycare center. And, uh, and someone was saying that miraculously all the children inside survived. Well, God does intervene sometimes to save people under seemingly incredible circumstances. Uh, the reality is we don't know what the world would be like if God didn't intervene and didn't restrain Satan's uh, evil, his bent toward evil. But the popular misconception among, among Christians, especially, is that um, if God is sovereign, then when evil occurs on a larger scale, it's a genocide, an earthquake, a flood, or something like that that, that kills a lot of people, that because God is sovereign and all-powerful, that he somehow wills those events to happen because they fit in with his larger purpose. And, and I don't think that's correct. I don't think it's scriptural. I don't think the Bible teaches us that. I, I think that if we learn anything from Job's experience, it was Satan, not God, that manipulated evil people and, and those natural phenomena uh, to cause disaster and, and death in, in Job's life. And to attribute everything that happens that's bad to, to God's actions, I think uh, maligns our perfectly loving and, and, and good and perfectly just God. And it, it leads us down a path that, uh, that leads us away from the truth and uh, ultimately immobilizes us as Christians and neutralizes us um, in terms of what uh, God would have our response be. Let me suggest to you that there are, are, are three reasons why, why evil happens in the world. And the first is because Satan is in control of this world and he's constantly trying to kill and destroy. That is his nature. Jesus said in, uh, excuse me, in, in uh, 1 John 5.19, John says, this about Satan's control of the world. He says, we know that we are the children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And, and Jesus spoke to this repeatedly in the Gospels, didn't he? He said, the prince of this world. He called Satan the prince of this world. He said, Jesus kind of parachuted in to save us in a, host, in a very, very hostile environment. Jesus went behind enemy lines. Uh, to, to rescue us and came into a world that he knew was very hostile to him. Satan was in control of the world at that time and, and, is, and is still. Jesus in uh, John 10.10 10, uh, speaks of Satan. He says, uh, he describes Satan as a thief who comes only to kill and steal and destroy. 
if you look back in uh, some of the, the references to Satan, we, we try to figure out, well, who is this person and who is this entity and where did he come from? Uh, you see that uh, he, the scripture tells us that he was the wisest and the most beautiful of God's created beings when God created uh, angels. And uh, he rebelled against God and, and that he's now bent on the destruction of us as God's children and on the destruction of God's kingdom. Uh, and if you're interested in, in more about his fall and where he came from and what his position was, uh, Isaiah 14, 12 through 14 uh, covers more of that. But the, the, the point now is that uh, God and Satan are involved in this cosmic battle, this spiritual battle for control of the kingdom, for, for control of our hearts and minds, first of all. So that's the first reason. Satan is in control of the world. He's constantly trying to kill and destroy. And the second reason is that uh, God designed all created beings, human and angelic, with the capacity for the exercise of free will. Uh, we know that, don't we? Uh, because uh, God built into us the capacity for free will. We can choose whether or not to obey. And, and most times, hopefully, we choose to obey God and, and to live a life that's a, a godly life. But there are occasions when we choose evil, right? And, and God allows us to do that sometimes. Uh, certainly there are consequences, and we have to ask forgiveness after the fact. But uh, sometimes we, we choose evil. Adam and Eve made a bad choice. They, they sinned. And uh, the fall was the consequence of that. But God also, something we don't think about, is God also created Satan, and he created uh, angelic beings with a free will, the capacity to exercise their free will, to, to choose good and, and choose evil. And the scripture tells us that at some point in time, Satan chose evil. That Isaiah passage speaks to that. Why he did that. He wanted to elevate himself above God and, and so on. Um, and from that time, he, he began to exercise his free will toward evil, and he's still doing that. In, uh, in 1 Peter 5.8, Peter tells us, he describes Satan, he says to the Christians, be self-controlled and alert, because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Satan is bent on evil, and, and we can see the consequences of that bent all around us. So that's the second reason. Satan exercises his free will toward evil. The third reason is that the creation itself has been badly marred by the effects of, of sin. When, if, if you haven't thought about it, when the fall occurred, when Adam and Eve um, committed sin, when they disobeyed God, it not only infected mankind with that corrosive disease of sin that Christ had to rescue us from, it infected all of creation, didn't it? It infected all of creation. If you don't believe that, think about this. Think about this. Um, that big earthquake that just happened in China, and perhaps you heard about that giant fault that runs under the one city of 10,000 people that was completely destroyed by the earthquake. That fault, do you think that fault was there at creation? I don't think so. Because God didn't create a, a universe with faults in it and defects in it. He created it perfect. That fault wasn't there at that time. But I'm suggesting that, uh, as Paul says in, in Romans 8, when, when he talks about the effects of sin on creation, that, that the whole creation suffers uh, as a result of that infection of sin, if you will, or that corrosive impact of, of sin on creation, and that the whole creation is waiting for the redemption that will come 
when, uh, when Christ comes back to, to make redemption complete in terms of the universe as well. And so the, the uh, destructive natural phenomena like tornadoes and earthquakes, do you suppose that there were tornadoes and earthquakes and floods in the Garden of Eden before the fall? I don't think so. I don't think so. None of that happened then. Uh, but it, it began to after the fact. And, and that's a byproduct of, of the fall of the impact on creation. So some of these uh, disasters and events like that happen uh, because of the corrosive effect of, of sin on, on creation. They'll continue to occur until Christ returns to make everything right. And uh, perhaps you're familiar with the prophecies about the, the uh, new heaven and the new earth that Jesus will bring into being. Uh, but those are the three reasons. And I, and I think uh, when, we, when we don't see that clearly, uh, what it gives us sometimes is a, is a warped perspective on, on why things happen and what our response should be. So there are, there are about two different perspectives that I want to contrast for you in the church today about what our response should be toward all that. The, the misconception that God is, is uh, responsible for acts of evil and tragedy and uh, disaster and so on uh, leads us to kind of a complacency and an inaction because we want to say, well, if, if God's uh, behind all that, then you know, who am I to oppose it? We'll just, uh, I mean, we'll fold our hands and we'll just accept that as part of his purpose and so on. But it, what it does is it keeps us from relying on the power that God has provided to us to take back the kingdom, uh, which is our mission. And it, and it leads us to the, the life of just sitting on the bench and waiting for the bus to heaven. You see, uh, I, I think a lot of us as believers think that once, once we accept Christ as our Savior, our salvation is assured, and, and then our role after that is just kind of sit on the bench and wait for the, the bus to heaven. I don't think that was the, the New Testament uh, believer's perspective at all. I think in the, in the early church, um, they thought of themselves more as, as soldiers. And Christians in the early church never had to ask, why do bad things happen to, to good people? They knew why. It was because Satan was alive and well, and he was trying to destroy the early church. And you see evidence of that again and again in, in Acts, certainly. And that's why the Apostle Paul used the military metaphor again and again. He, he spoke to, uh, of believers as soldiers. 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, he says, Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Paul didn't ask the New Testament church to accept the fact that uh, evil was happening to them and around them and j just accept it as part of God's larger purpose for them. He told them to oppose it to actively fight against it. He says in, uh, in Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, it's a, it's a spiritual battle that we're in. It's not a physical battle. It's, it's one fought in the spiritual realm. Uh, an example of that in the early church um, was with, in uh, Acts 12. Remember when uh, uh, John was, uh, or excuse me, James was taken by King Herod and executed. He was beheaded. And uh, Herod said that, seemed to think the Jews liked that so well, so he was going to do the same thing to Peter. So he seized Peter, threw him in jail. 
Now at that time, do you see those early Christians folding their hands and saying, well, I guess God's purpose for Peter is just that uh, he die as a martyr in, uh, under, in Herod's uh, custody there, just like James did. I guess there's nothing we can do about it. We'll just have to accept it. No. They launched a prayer attack, remember? They, they closeted themselves together in prayer, and they prayed earnestly day and night, and what happened? God sent an angel, and he broke Peter out of jail, and, uh, and Peter's life was saved as a result of, of their prayers. What, what I'm suggesting is that uh, God wants us to take a, an active role as soldiers. He never intended for us to sit on the bench waiting for the, the bus to heaven. He intended us to be soldiers to, who in his power would do battle with Satan and turn back evil and take back the world for God. I, I think that's, that's the role he's put us in. And, and so we need to think of the church uh, not so much as a sanctuary as it is a, a fire base. Um, we thought about the church as a place to keep Christians safe from the world, and I think that's all wrong. God intends it to be a fire base like a beachhead in an evil world from which we launch spiritual attacks to take back a piece of the kingdom, to, to make an impact for God in our, in our communities in that spiritual warfare. And Jesus spoke of the power of the church and what God's intention was for the church in uh, Matthew 16, 18. He, he was talking to Peter, and he said, uh, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's how powerful God intends for the church to be in, uh, in the community, that the gates of hell, that is all the evil that Satan can marshal, will not prevail against the church. That's his intention for it. He did not intend for the church to be safe. He intended for the church to be his most potent weapon, and, and Satan's worst nightmare. And he makes his power available to us to accomplish that mission. In Ephesians uh, 3, 20 and 21, he says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Notice glory in the church. God's glory is supposed to be evidenced in the church here. And Satan understands this sometimes, I think, better than we do. And that's why the focus of his attack is very often on the church. Um, because he knows the key, the key role that the church is supposed to be t uh, playing in the spiritual warfare that, that's taking place. And that's why individual believers and the larger church, and especially church leaders, are often the focus of his attacks. And we see this all the time in the, in the news, don't we? He tries to, to neutralize the church through attacks on its leaders by causing division within the church, uh, by uh, getting us to focus on trivial differences in the church, or, or just general garden variety lethargy will, will accomplish the same thing. Anything to, to neutralize us as a church. I don't know if you caught the news item last week about the, uh, the assistant pastor at a, at a large megachurch in Texas. Uh, the, the CNN footage showed him being led away in handcuffs. He had some inappropriate interactions with a 13-year-old on the Internet. And uh, he, he's taken out of action, you know. That is, I thought when I saw that, that is just typical of what Satan's schemes are. Take out the leaders of the church. Uh, attack the church in any way you can. And certainly we've seen ma uh, many, many of those kinds of uh, instances take place. And Jesus himself, you know, noted 
that uh, Satan's attacks would be on the leaders of churches. He said, in, uh, he, he was talking to Simon Peter in Luke 22:31. He said this. This is striking, I think. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith would not fail. Isn't that striking? Satan came to God and said he wanted to sift Peter as wheat. Um, what do you suppose he's saying to God about us? Is he, is he approaching God and saying, I want to sift that believer like wheat and see what happens. I want to put them through the ringer. And that's, that's why it's so important to pray for our church leaders. And that's why it's so important to pray for each other uh, for protection from, from Satan's attacks. So how do we... Uh, well, another tactic that Satan uses certainly is to obstruct our efforts uh, to bring in God's kingdom and to do God's work. Uh, and, and Paul comments on that in, in Thessalonians. He says uh, he wanted to get to the Thessalonian church again and again, and it was prevented. He says, for we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. Um, and there are all kinds of obstacles that Satan can throw in the way to make that happen. And that the same thing can happen to us. So how do we protect ourselves? Well, God has provided for that. Uh, he's told us what the battlefield is. He's told us, uh, he's given, provided us with the armor and, and also with spiritual weapons to defend ourselves and, and to go on the offense. Now, Paul recognized that, uh, that the first issue was, where is the battlefield? And uh, let me suggest to you that the, the battlefield is in our mind, first of all, our mind and heart. Proverbs said, guard your heart. For from it flow the issues of life. And uh, the uh, battlefield in this day and age where the spiritual warfare takes place is in the mind. Ours first of all, and then the mind of every other person on this planet that God wants to, to draw to himself. Uh, Paul recognized that. He said in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, uh, he told the believers, The God of this age, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And he recognized that uh, because the battle was for the hearts and minds of, of uh, believers and, and unbelievers alike, that, he that we had to fight differently. It, it, it's different than, uh, than just an, an argument. He says uh, in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, he says, for though we live in the world, this is a different kind of warfare, he says, although we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Those three things, folks, strongholds and uh, arguments and pretensions are all things that that uh, are part of Satan's deception in, in our minds, uh, certainly, but especially in the minds of a person who is resistant to the gospel and, and who is an unbeliever. It's part of Satan's plan to deceive them. They put up all those things in, our, in their minds. God has given us the tools and the power uh, to, to bypass those things and to draw that person in, into the kingdom uh, through the, the uh, weapons and the, the tactics that he, he gives us. What about our armor? Now, Paul describes the armor that, uh, that he's given us to defend ourselves. He says in Ephesians 6, Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, like came to Peter, 
and has come to some of us as well. When the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. We don't have the time to, to unpack all the, the uh, meanings of each one of those pieces of armor, but suffice it to say that, that, that those, armor, those pieces of armor are for the most part defensive to defend us against Satan's attacks on us. And they protect our head, they protect our heart, and the, and our, the areas that are critical for, for our health as, uh, as Christians, for our spiritual vitality. God also gives us the, uh, the sword of the Spirit that is the Word of, the, of God. He describes it in, in Hebrews where he says, The Word of God is living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Folks, this is no ordinary book, as you know. Uh, God uses it in our lives to shape our character, to give us what we need to speak to other people, uh, to equip us for the work that he has given us in this world to take back the kingdom. It is a living book. Uh, but to become proficient with any weapon, you know, I used to be a policeman years ago, and, uh, and as part of that experience, I also spent six and a half years on a, on a specialized team that dealt with hostage takers and barricaded gunmen. And we would go in to uh, rescue hostages and deal with barricaded gunmen on a regular basis. And I, I can't tell you how meticulous we were about our equipment and about our planning and about our weapons. We, we, paid, we focused on that. We were disciplined about it because we wanted to make sure that everything was ready. And, and in reflecting on this message, I, I often uh, think that I'm, I'm so much less disciplined about uh, the Word of God and about becoming proficient with that sword than I was uh, about my proficiency with all the other weapons that I've trained with over the years. Uh, I was so meticulous and disciplined about that and uh, I think what God could accomplish through me if I were as meticulous and disciplined uh, about his word and, uh, and his life in me. Suffice it to say that uh, to become proficient with any weapon, in this case the word of God, you really need to spend time with it. You need to read it. You need to study it. You need to memorize it. You need to pray about it with your father and have him impress it on your heart so that it comes out in your life as you live your life from day to day. And finally, prayer, the long-range weapon of choice. You know, uh, when I was doing that kind of work, we had all kinds of different weapons, and they were for different kinds of situations. And we had some that were for long-range and some that were for close-up, and, and uh, some that were designed to do different kinds of jobs. Well, God has provided us with a, a spiritual weapon in prayer that I don't think we use nearly enough. Paul alludes to it at least 35 times in his letters to believers, he, he tells believers to pray. One example is in 1 Timothy 2, 1, 1 and 2, where he says, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and for all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness 
and holiness. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus alluded to the same thing. Remember, he says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What he's talking about is asking God to execute his purposes, asking God to bring his kingdom into reality. Uh, and Jesus modeled that for us. And, and you know, we, sometimes we wonder, well, why does God knows all this stuff? Why does God want us to pray? The way he set up the world, the, the, the world of spiritual warfare is he set up prayer as the trigger, folks. He set up prayer as the trigger that unleashes his power to make a difference in, in, the, in the world around us. And, and we need to use prayer in order to, to unleash God's, God's power. Question to you. Uh, what, what evil has occurred in the world, either around us or on a larger scale, because Christians have not been praying earnestly against that evil? What evil has occurred in our world because we've not prayed earnestly against it? What kingdom purposes might God have desired to accomplish through you and me that did not become a reality because we weren't praying earnestly about him uh, realizing his purposes in our lives because we weren't attentive to that? Ask God who he's put in your life right now. A small step. Ask God who he's put in your life right now that he wants you to be praying about, that he wants you to impact for the kingdom. What, what part of the world is there that he's positioned you to change, uh, that, to take back from the control of the evil one, uh, that he's prepared you to do that by, by the, the, uh, the, the position he's, he's put you in in your sphere of influence. And, and finally, uh, our, our testimony or our experience with God is a powerful weapon in terms of this spiritual warfare. Um, in addition to prayer, the, the simple story of what God is doing in our lives on a daily basis is a powerful weapon in, in that spiritual warfare. And it has a huge impact on the people around us. Personal stories of answered prayer, of uh, God's faithfulness in difficult times, God's gift of peace and joy in, in the midst of sorrow sometimes, for those of you who have been through that. Uh, scripture, where God's giving you an insight in Scripture uh, that's made a difference in your life that you can share with somebody else. All those things are are your personal testimony. And if you're in, in the scripture on a daily basis and if you're in prayer on a daily basis, God is going to be at work in your life. And you're going to have things that you can share uh, that are the product of that that will have a powerful impact on the people around you. You know, for a war story, uh, this is an unusual one because the last chapter has already been written, hasn't it? Uh, Jesus has already accomplished the victory. And uh, that's the good news, that he won the ultimate victory over Satan for us through his death on the cross. We're, we're in the stage now where we're, we're mopping up. The victory's been won. We're just, we're just partnering with God and taking back his creation from the evil one. And, and with Christians down through the ages, we can joyfully read that, that last line of the story uh, as Paul says it in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 57. He says, thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the victory has been won. Uh, fellow believers, uh, sisters and brothers, the victory has already been won in, in Jesus Christ. And now he, he asks us to live that out in, in our corner of the world from day to day. Let's pray together, shall we? 
Father, we thank you for, uh, for this time together. We thank you for a, a look in your word at, at some of the bigger questions of life. And, and Lord, uh, having said all this this morning, we just have to trust you. And we come before you as, uh, as people who love you and trust you and, and ask you to work out your purpose in each of our lives and to use us to make a difference for your kingdom in whatever way you choose. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Enjoy your weekend and you're dismissed. <laughs>